Good afternoon. Welcome to the Middle East Forums webinar series and podcast, Israel Insider with Ashley Perry. I'm Stacey Roman, and I will be moderating this discussion today. We're pleased to have Mr. Ashley Perry, advisor to the Middle East Forum's Israel office, join us here each Wednesday at 3 p.m. Eastern to update us on all the events going on in Israel. Mr. Perry will be giving us a briefing on current Israeli affairs for 15 minutes and open it up for questions. Should you wish to ask a question, please use the Q&A box located at the bottom of your screen to type out your question. Now, with no further ado, I'll turn the discussion over to Mr. Ashley Perry. Thank you very much, Stacey, and good evening from Israel. Um, we, as it stands, uh, there is exactly a week and two hours left of Yair Lapid's mandate to form a government. That's really uh, the big news in Israel uh, is exactly what's going to happen. In the last few days, uh, we've seen Yair Lapid sign coalition agreements with pretty much all his potential partners in the change bloc, except for two, and that is Gidon Saar's uh, New Hope Party and Naftali Bennett's Yamina Party. And uh, the reason is simple, because these are the two uh, so-called right-wing parties that are still being very much courted by Netanyahu. On the one hand, you have Yamina and Naftali Bennett, who at the beginning of the conflict with Hamas, if you remember, said that the uh, change government is off the table. That made sense at the time, the, uh, the people rallying around the government, around the security forces, the IDF, uh, obviously, during conflicts, the country turns to the right, becomes a little bit more bullish, obviously, in the outlook. Uh, so it made sense for him to say that. Now that the conflict is finished, um, his comments have been a lot more circumspect to the point where it's clear that the change camp option is certainly back on the table. What we do know is that openly there are still negotiations going on between uh, Prime Minister Netanyahu and Bennett. Uh, the options are, you know, for, for, for weeks now, there's been talk, you know, Yamina have said openly, if there is a government, a right-wing government, we're there. Uh, but there has been no other, uh, uh, what they call, uh, you know, deserters from the change camp, which is what they need. You know, we always talked about the fact that Yamina with the, with the uh, pro-Netanyahu uh, cap makes only 59, they need 61. And there has been... Uh, no real um, movement uh, by any individuals or even parties to move across. Uh, and Bennett keeps on saying to Netanyahu and Batsal Smotrich, the National Religious Party, who's attacking him more and more these days, show me your two deserters and I'm there. And so far nothing has happened. And there's been quite a war of words today um, between uh, Batsal Smotrich and members of the Yamina party, whether it's Naftali Bennett, or Ayelet Sheked, apparently there was a meeting with a very well thought of and recognized rabbi from the national religious community uh, attended by uh, Ayelet Sheked and Batal Smotrich. Both came out with very different versions of what that event was, that meeting was uh, meant to achieve. Uh, but basically Batal Smotrich has got into a, a bit of a war, I'm sure with a wink and a nod from the prime minister to try and put pressure on Yamina. Uh, again, painting them going into a left-wing government according to Vital Smotrich, Yamina has already decided to go into a left, uh, this change camp, or what he would describe as a left-wing government. Obviously, they're right-wing parties, centrist parties and left-wing parties, but obviously it uh, makes good sense from a PR point of view for Smotrich and Netanyahu and his uh, people to tar it as a left-wing uh, government, because obviously that delegitimizes uh, Naftali 
Bennett's position. Naftali Bennett, uh, in response, has told his people that, you know, while they're attacking us, there can be no negotiations. But the offer on the table is from the Netanyahu camp is at this point uh, 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 confirmed uh, positions on the liquid list in the, should there be another round of elections. Now, obviously, um, Netanyahu has the capability to do it, but there are lots of people in the Likud who would be very unhappy about that. Obviously, the more Yamina people, then everyone below each Yamina person on that Likud list would be one position lower, and that means one position less likely to get into the next Knesset. You can imagine those lower down on the list who are currently sitting in the Knesset are rebelling against that, and apparently quite a few of them met yesterday to voice their disquiet about that, but even people higher up on the list are unhappy about it. You know, these are not liquid people. Whether some of them were in the past is irrelevant. Today, you know, they, they, they're in a different party. So that could actually amount to a little bit of an open rebellion, perhaps even the first uh, of Netanyahu's reign, or at least of late, uh, if that promise should uh, be attempted to be fulfilled. Um, it is my personal belief that, uh, and I've spoken to quite a few people, whether it's the Lapid camp, Bennett camp, Saar camp, Lieberman camp, that uh, and basically all of them are saying things like it's 50-50, it all depends on Bennett, you know, he hasn't really shown his face in a while, and negotiations between him and Lapid have not really taken place uh, of late. But my particular feeling is I think Bennett does prefer the change camp for a few reasons. First of all, it's clear that he does not need uh, another round of elections because he will basically be decimated at the polls. Uh, you know, he will be painted as a left wing. Uh, he'll, uh, he'll be painted as a right wing traitor by negotiating with the left wing, by wanting to be part of it. Uh, he already lost much of his base even up to uh, the last election. So I think he would be in serious trouble and I, and I think he knows that. So another round of elections would be very problematic. As I said, the one parachute that he has on the other side is to at least be placed on reserve positions in the liquid list. But I think his, his preference at this point, he, he obviously would say his preference is a right-wing government, but I think his preference at this point is the change camp. Uh, he gets to be prime minister, he gets to be prime minister first, and he gets to end, or at least the, the very big possibility of ending prime minister Netanyahu's reign as prime minister for sure, but even maybe uh, in liquid and in politics. I personally don't see that's happening but certainly would be a major step backwards and would certainly break a certain amount of the spell that uh, Netanyahu has over his uh, base, his voters. Uh, so I think it would achieve more than if he just went into uh, a right-wing government. He knows that he can't trust Netanyahu. Uh, he knows that even if he got reserve spots, you know, we, we've seen that before and sometimes things go right, some things, uh, sometimes these things go wrong. But what we know is it wouldn't be a long-lasting agreement, and I'm sure that any opportunity they would try and uh, chuck uh, them out, and they would sideline them, and who knows if they'd give them a, a significant ministry. Um, so, you know, I, I really do believe that Naftali Bennett has to look like he's being dragged, kicking and screaming into the change camp. He can't be seen as enthusiastically embracing it because that won't play, uh, play well, not just with his base, but with his own party. You know, he has seven seats here, already one uh, seat, uh, one member of Knesset said he will not support uh, a change government. So at the moment he's bringing six um, and he needs to bring all six. So far, everyone is stood very much in line with Bennett, but I think he has to look like he's doing everything 
to try and bring a right-wing government uh, into realization, knowing that it probably won't happen, uh, and probably no more so than for his number two, Yair Shaked. There's been a lot of talk about the relationship between Bennett and Shaked, which was always extremely close throughout the years, but now people are saying that there's some distance between them. Ayelet Shaked tried to put up a picture on Twitter the other day of the two of them saying everything is good with us, and then other people pointed out that this picture was a couple of years old. I think the relationship is still good. I think Shaked would much rather go in the right-wing camp, and I think Bennett would much rather go in the change camp. Ayelet Shaked, for the first time in since she was the leader of the party, uh, held uh, a press conference on her own, and a lot of people were looking to see the signs of what she was saying. Most of it was spent attacking Smotrich, or at least defending herself against uh, Batal Smotrich, because Batal Smotrich attacked her uh, earlier in the day. But the most significant thing about Ayelet Shaked's speech was the fact that she did not uh, take the change government off the table. And a lot of people say that this gives it hope. I think it will come down to the why, because as I said, he has to look like he's doing everything to go into the right-wing camp. The other question is, and what a lot of pundits are saying is, while this is all happening, people are taking their eyes off Gidon Saar. And Gidon Saar has not denied that there's some level of negotiations with Netanyahu. Uh, the possibility of him becoming prime minister first in a right-wing government is apparently on the table, and it hasn't been rejected. There's certainly a lot of suspicion and mistrust, uh, and it would take quite a lot for Gidon Saar to come across. Uh, Netanyahu, as the clock ticks down, will probably do everything and the offers will get larger and larger. At the moment, Gidon Saar probably will not uh, move across, but I think as the days go on and Netanyahu gets more and more desperate and the offers get greater and greater, one never knows. I don't think Benny Gantz is too much of an option at the moment, but one never knows. We, we saw him at the last minute uh, uh, defect, so one, you know, one never knows again. On the security front, obviously the conflict has ended. We had Secretary of State Blinken uh, in Israel today in the region. We also had Dominic Raab, the uh, British Foreign Secretary. We had the German um, Foreign Minister the other day. So there's a lot of diplomatic activity uh, around, uh, around Israel and with the Palestinians. And, and the main aim is to, for these foreign politicians is to try and extend this ceasefire, not just make it a temporary truce uh, and try and see what can be done with uh, an eye on what uh, what can be done about Hamas, how there can be civilian help without helping Hamas rearm. What we have seen from Hamas is the usual after-conflict victory dances. You know, we've seen quite a lot of events. Uh, we've seen a lot of uh, you know marches and uh, and, and such uh, with their talk of victory. Uh, the interesting message that, that's coming out is again. Hamas are going back to what we saw at the beginning of the conflict, trying to look like the guardians of Jerusalem and saying that this truce will not last if Israel does anything to Al-Aqsa. Interesting enough, last night we had a very uh, formally combative but very weak uh, presentation by uh, Hezbollah's uh, General Secretary, uh, Hassan Nasrallah. So I believe it's the 21st anniversary of Israel's retreat from Lebanon and obviously with the recent uh, conflict in Gaza, he related to both, and again, towing the line that Al-Aqsa is an issue that will ignite the region into regional war. But the most interesting th part of that speech was not what he said, but how he acted. Hassan Nasrallah is someone who has a very, very carefully scripted persona, always strong, making fun of his enemies, really a, a very strong personality, strong words. Yesterday, we saw an extremely weak presentation, extremely weak speech, mostly because he spent uh, 
the large parts of it coughing and spluttering and difficulty in breathing. And that's really detracted from anything he can say because around Lebanon, Israel, Iran, elsewhere, people are wondering what is wrong with Hassan Nasrallah. Uh, some believe that maybe he is, has the coronavirus. There's a lot of talk that he, he doesn't trust going to any hospital. Um, and he's, you know, he's been sitting in his bunker for many years, uh, scared of Israeli retaliation. Um, so th they say that he hasn't had the coronavirus vaccine. Uh, because he's nervous to go to the hospital to get it, and he's nervous what it could happen. But what we did see, and it's fascinating to see it, really, someone who was just struggling and, and splurting through, through the speech. So the IDF uh, came out with a tweet recently calling him weak, and it certainly won't have done anything for uh, his persona. Uh, locally here, you know, uh, representing or being part of the Middle East uh, foreign team here in Israel with the Israel Victory Project, we mentioned it last week, uh, it, it got off the ground on Sunday with billboards around the country saying that the people demand uh, victory. Uh, there's a lot of discontent, uh, according to polls, as much as three quarters of the country believe uh, this truce, this ceasefire was too soon. Israel didn't achieve its objectives. Uh, Israel didn't give Hamas a hard enough uh, sort of whack. Uh, Israel didn't do anything towards disarmament. Israel did not really, and that's clear from all the leaks, that Israel didn't do much or even anything to retrieve uh, the, the two bodies of Israeli soldiers and the two Israeli civilians being held by Hamas. Uh, the most important thing, uh, on, on, as, you know, as we talked last week a little bit about victory in, in, in wars and how wars are won generally, is the other side, uh, you know, you break the will of the other side uh, to continue fighting. Israel is a, a long way from that. And, when we saw uh, people like Sinwar, the Hamas leader, come out, you know, with his smiling and the fact that he openly said, you know, I'm here out in the open. He sort of almost asked Israel to attack him. He said, I'm going to be in my home later. I'm going to go to my office after that. I'm going to go here, there. Israelis know exactly where I am. They know where my new home is because they bombed the last one. Um, and the fact is that we see the Hamas leaders cheerfully talking about their victory, cheerfully talking about how they can walk the streets and no one can harm them. So it's clear that Israel was very far away from victory in this particular round, um, but the Middle East Forum is making sure that the issue of victory, the issue of really making sure that the next round is the last round, that there's no more rounds, uh, that the Hamas uh, will to continue fighting is broken, that they do disarm and all Israeli civilians uh, are returned safely uh, to Israel are on the national agenda. Um, and that's what we've been doing here in the Middle East office uh, in Israel. And with that, I'm happy to uh, answer any questions. All right, thank you so much. So the first question we have in is from Reuven Hawk, and um, we're just going back to basics for a minute here. Uh, basically, like legally, what allows Knesset members to switch parties? Are the parties voted for or are individual parties, or are individuals in the parties voted for? Um, well, Israelis only have one ballot and you vote for a party. You don't vote for a person, you don't vote for a leader, you don't vote for a prime minister, you vote for um, a party list. And depending how many um, votes that uh, particular party tallies, it's then worked out uh, between the 120 members of Knesset how much each party will get. And if, let's say, a party gets 20, then the first 20 on that particular list will then become members of Knesset. Um, you can, uh, I don't know if you can switch party, but you can leave the party. You need at least a third to uh, legally do it. 
if you have less than a third, you will not be able to run in the next elections with an existing party. So whereas, um, you know, if, in, in a current Knesset, uh, you could, you know, one, one person could leave a party, but then in the next elections, they wouldn't be able to run with an existing party. So there's only a certain amount of inducement uh, that can be offered for people to leave their party. And believe me, there's been a lot of inducement uh, to do so. So that's, that's the, the legal framework of how that could happen at this point. Thank you so much for that. Uh, from Kerry, what is the political future of Netanyahu after the latest events in Gaza? Well, interestingly enough, they did polls. And I've said for a long time that Netanyahu has a bank of 30 seats, no matter what he does. You know, a lot of people credited him, rightly so, for the vaccine vaccination program, which was and still is very successful. We didn't talk about that, but as of Tuesday, I believe uh, Israel, I think, is one of the first countries at least to have absolutely no restrictions. That's it, it's done. We're going to have to wear masks inside for a few more days, they say, but that's about it. Obviously, border controls are something else, but internally, there's no restrictions on anything within Israel. So certainly he deserves a lot of credit for that. But if you look at the numbers, the numbers didn't go up or really down uh, from the successful vaccine program. And no matter whether it's the corruption issue, which is in the media, the court case, whether it's failures or successes, achievements, uh, you can see Netanyahu's poll ratings are pretty much consistent. And even after this uh, latest conflict, when you can see a lot of anger, a lot of disappointment, especially from his base, you know, in the South, uh, a lot of these towns and, and cities um, are liquid voters, are right-wing voters, are Bibi fans. And they say, you know, openly, we're very disappointed. But when it comes to it, many of them say there's no alternative and he's the best that we have. Um, as I said, he's, he's very, very good at that, maintaining his base, probably by far the best person in Israeli politics. So no matter where things are, whether it's seen as a success or a failure, I haven't seen a poll in at least a year that's, you know, that's shown a big drop or a big rise in Netanyahu's uh, base in, in any poll. What has happened a little bit is there's been movement within the blocks and, and that usually happens. According to every poll that I've seen, since the conflict, uh, the blocs haven't changed. No party would be, uh, no government really would be able to be formed so easily, just as the current situation. Um, uh, Yeshatid went up a little bit, Yamina went down a little bit, but as I said, the, the blocs really haven't changed and certainly Netanyahu's base seems to be very much intact. Thank you, and I know we've gone over this before, but J.R. Pride asks, uh, are the political left and right in Israel similar to what we know in Canada and the US? Um, not really. Uh, first of all, uh, left and right in Israel are more to do with issues of security or where you stand on the Palestinian issue. That's the most decisive factor, because I could show you people who are considered left-wing, even far left-wing, who are conservative uh, economically. Um, and vice versa, I could show you people on you know, right-wing lists, very right-wing lists, who are more left-wing, uh, financially, economically, socially, etc. cetera. Um, but there, there is a certain amount of an overlap, but as opposed to the American and the Canadian system, to a, a slightly lesser extent, we have a multi-party system. So here we have, you know, you can have a right-of-center party, a right-wing party, a far-right party, and even more far-right party, so, you know, they're, they're sort of fighting of each other and, you know, they're trying to make anyone to the left of them look left-wing and anyone to the right of them. You know, so 
Politics is very different. Probably the closest we have is the Italian system, which also has proportional representation. Uh, proportional representation certainly is a more messy system. It's a more representative system, uh, as opposed to the American or the British or the Canadian system, where a very large number of votes then get discarded in the Israeli system. Very, very few votes get discarded. So we have an extreme level of representation. But with that, and we've talked about that before, we have a relative low level of governability, of governance, of the ability to form a government. And Israel has certainly demonstrated this over the last two years. And you just have to look at Italy and the fact that they seem to have elections every five minutes and governments fall left, right and center. That's probably, sadly, not, not, not a great one for us to compare with, but that's probably the most comparable system uh, to the Israeli. Thank you so much for that explanation. Uh, from Lem, Len Levin, uh, regarding the Gaza rocket attacks and violence within Israel last week, what does the future hold for the mixed towns in 1948 Israel? Um, um, it's difficult to say. It's difficult to say at this point in time where there was a sort of flare up. It's obviously there's some deep seated, deep rooted problems there. Uh, some would argue that there's a hatred, an inherent hatred uh, between the two communities, perhaps the Arab, uh, certain uh, groups and communities within the Arab Israeli public that just will never accept Israel uh, and want to reject it. Perhaps it's due to outside influences, whether through incitement. Others say it's more to do with unemployment, uh, lower economic standards, uh, maybe even a generational thing. Because if you look at the, uh, the marches and the riots, mostly they were very young people on both sides. I mean, I don't think you saw many people over 30, certainly not over 40 in any of these riots. Um, so there's definitely a lot of work to do. Uh, tempers have calmed. What is interesting, and they've shown this quite a lot on the media, is you know a lot of a lot of Arab places in these mixed towns are now not uh, as frequented as much by Israeli uh, Israeli Jews. They showed sort of hummus places, which were you know frequented by Jews in Lod, are now pretty much empty. They said they haven't had a Jewish customer or rarely a Jewish customer for a while. So the tensions are still there. Uh, there's a certain fear and mistrust. Uh, within many of these uh, cities and towns, and, and a lot of is Israelis are feeling it. They feel, you know, we, we under, you know, we, not that we understand it, but we're used to attacks from Gaza, we're used to, uh, you know, terrorist attacks from Judea and Samaria, the West Bank, but rarely to this, certainly not to this level of violence within uh, Israel by Israeli Arabs, who are full citizens with full rights, full benefits, et cetera, et cetera. Um, so there's a lot of people who are fearful to sort of tread over the line and go back to life as it was before. Um, and I think that will take quite, uh, quite a lot of time to really heal those wounds um, and quite a lot of policing, a lot of discussion exactly now, how exactly do you police these areas? Because for example, if we look at the town of Lod, where it was the, really the focal point of a lot of the riots and fighting between the two communities, uh, many households in the Arab community, especially have guns, have illegal guns. So it's not as if you, you, you know, police can just go in and sort of uh, clear up some knives and some clubs or go in and arrest people, knowing that there's a very good chance that when you go into a, a particular building, there is a good chance that there'll be some sort of weaponry there. Uh, so it makes it certainly a lot tougher. So there's a lot of discussions there and certainly a lot, uh, a lot of debate happening at the moment on that, on that particular issue. Thank you. From Len Getz, uh, you did already say there is a sense in Israel that the, cease, 
uh, ceasefire was called too soon. Um, but do you think that the Israelis feel like they were forced to agree to the ceasefire by the Biden administration and other outside influences? It's a good question. Certainly there was a lot of pressure put on by the Americans. As we saw, America, uh, the Americans were at the beginning gave Israel a lot of room. Uh, but certainly the clock was ticking, you know, always when, when, when the shooting starts, there, there's a clock. The international community has a clock. The Americans have a clock. The Europeans have a separate clock. The Arab world has a, you know, completely different clock. Uh, the most important one to the Israelis is certainly the American one. Um, and what we did see is they, they gave quite a lot of uh, room at the beginning and certainly a lot of uh, uh, sort of defense at the uh, United Nations Security Council, but there came a point where it was clear that the Americans were expecting Israel to stand down and they put that message across. And, you know, when, 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 uh, when President Biden says, I expect Israel to lower tensions within 24 hours, it, that's pretty much what happened. Uh, so it's clear that there was a lot of pressure uh, on Israel, if that pressure hadn't happened, was Israel looking to continue? There's a big debate that, uh, surrounding that. There are some who blame the defense establishment who said, you know, we, we got every target, not every target, we got most of our bank of targets. Um, now it's time to, you know, capitalize on it and, and call for a truce. There are others who blame the political establishment that said, you know, if it goes on much longer, maybe it'll go out of control. And that's not something that uh, they particularly want. Um, so it's, it's unsure, but what is uh, pretty certain is that there was tremendous uh, you know, uh, pressure from the Biden administration, and that seemed to tally very much with when Israel did eventually sign on to the ceasefire. Thank you. So what exactly does Blinken's announcement of funding, new funding to Gaza mean for <laughs> Israel victory and, and the ceasefire? Um, well, I mean, it all depends. We, we've heard these sort of things before. I mean, you know, the, the aim of the Americans, or at least the stated aim of the Americans, is to try and rehabilitate Gaza without uh, strengthening Hamas. Now, how you do that, considering Hamas are the basic uh, de facto sovereign in Gaza, and they run everything from the hospitals to the social affairs to everything, is, is going to be almost impossible. And interestingly enough, the Hamas leaders said that we don't want money from the West. We have our own uh, revenue sources and we know where those are. We know that they are Iran, Qatar, other Arab or Muslim sources. So they're kind of rejecting that um, because they know it will come with conditions when it comes from the West. I don't see a way at this point how you can rehabilitate um, Gaza without having Hamas very much involved. Perhaps there'll be that denial at the beginning. But it's certainly not in the line with, uh, you know, the aims of the uh, Israel Victory Project, which would seek to put far, far more pressure on uh, the terrorist organization, Hamas and other terrorist organizations within Gaza. Thank you. And two different questions. Uh, could Hamas be truly defeated without a costly ground invasion? And does anyone think that Hamas's will can be broken? That's, that's a good question. Uh, that's something that we are uh, you know, dealing with at the moment. We're speaking to a lot of military experts. I'm, I'm not a military expert, so I can't give the details of how exactly and what, what that would look like. And we're also asking the people, you know, don't forget, A, this is a population that's seen this before. Most of Israel at one point has been in the security forces, whether in the IDF uh, as a conscript or, or whatever. So there's, there's, there's quite a large amount of knowledge about what goes on in Gaza 
what Hamas represents, what the Israeli army can do. Uh, so we're checking those things and we're, we're, we're seeing what is possible to give some sort of policy recommendations to the decision makers and the opinion shapers in Israel. Uh, what exactly that would look like, I think will be a little bit uh, cleverer in a, in a few weeks on, on those issues. Thank you. We talked about the supply chains for Gaza, or Hamas. Are there any other practical resupply avenues for Israel besides the U.S.? Um, resupply of Iron Dome oil. I mean, the only thing Israel really needs resupplying is, is Iron Dome missiles, and that seems to be, I mean, that's a joint Israeli-American venture, so it makes sense that we would get that from America. As far as anything else, you know, we're, we're, we're quite capable of, uh, you know, resupplying ourselves. You know, we're a function, fully functioning democracy. Um, anything that we need, we trade with other countries, we buy, um, so there's no real need there. But on Iron Dome, uh, defense system, certainly there's, uh, there's a need to rearm that because you can imagine the thousands of uh, missiles that were launched from the Iron Dome system uh, to defend uh, uh, Israeli citizens. Um, so that, that apparently has already been worked out with, them, uh, with the US and hopefully the shipments are on their way. Sorry, we had another you on there. <laughs> Um, so along those lines, uh, I know Israel is a fully functioning country and can, can take care of itself, but uh, with U.S. aid, if that was to, if Israel were to um, stop taking U.S. aid, would there be more freedom of action from Larry Greenberg? Well, first of all, Israel doesn't ha have any aid. We stopped uh, aid from America a number of years ago. What we do have is uh, defense agreements where America provides a certain amount of equipment or funds throughout the year, a large amount of it, by the way, is actually spent in America. It's really to help the American defense industry. In fact, I think the majority of it, if I'm not much mistaken. So we don't really receive any aid from uh, America. Uh, but still, you know, America does give beyond the military assistance. It does give a tremendous cover at the UN Security uh, Council. Uh, where it rejected, I think, at least three proposals, I think by the French, at least one or two of them, um, that, would, that would at least, if not be anti-Israel, would have called for ceasefires earlier uh, than actually happened. So, you know, America is the, uh, you know, the, the, there's no disputing that uh, America and Israel are very strong allies and uh, Israel will always listen to the Americans, whether it listens to the point where you know, if America demands something, that's a whole other question. Uh, as I said before, it's clear that the American demands were met, these very open demands. Uh, there's a question that certainly can be asked whether you know, the American president should be demanding openly and vocally, as opposed to in private calls uh, to the prime minister of Israel, exactly what he should be doing. Uh, but it's clear that that was a tactic to show that that's what the American expectations were. Perhaps, as has been argued, that was to allay the more progressive wing of the Democratic Party, which is certainly becoming more and more anti-Israel and it's certainly been criticizing Israel, uh, even with libels, uh, I would argue, uh, for some of the things that, that was coming out of that. But it's clear that, like every uh, politician, he has his own pressures within his party, with his administration, with his allies in Europe and in the Arab Muslim world, um, whatever the reasons are, then obviously a strong Israeli prime minister would have to consider 
uh, weighing things up. It could be Prime Minister Netanyahu said, you know, we've got the fight over Iran, which is much bigger than Gaza, which is much bigger than Hamas, and it's difficult to argue that. Um, and you know, if, if we if we go against Biden on this, will we be able to then go against him equally on the JCPOA because those negotiations are ongoing, as Secretary of State Blinken made clear when he was in Israel. And that's really for Prime Minister Netanyahu the bigger fight. So it could be he's decided, you know, let's let's give in on this one so we can try and gain something on the Iran nuclear issue. That could be. Uh, that hasn't been said. That hasn't even been hinted about. But certainly. On both sides, there are there are many many broader calculations than just the particular ceasefire. All right. Well, thank you so much for that explanation. Uh, we've come to the close of our webinar and podcast. Ashley, thank you again for taking time to update us this week. For our viewers and listeners, please join us Friday at 11 a.m. Eastern for a webinar with David Minashri uh, discussing Iranians' debate the nuclear deal. Uh, please note the time change. Thank you all for joining us and I hope you have a great day.